Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 14. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for sending a Savior. And we ask that you would give us wisdom and understanding as we open up this text this morning, that you would lead and guide our hearts. We ask for the Spirit's help in applying the word to our hearts. And Father, we do ask that if anyone here today does not know this Savior, that you would change their hearts this very day, turn them to you for salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. These angels declare to the shepherds, peace on earth. And they say that they are bringing good news of great joy. But unless we understand what's so good about this news, unless we understand why we need this good news, then we don't actually believe it's good. We don't know that it's good. Unless we understand why God brought peace to earth, why that was necessary, we don't look at this as a reason to rejoice. When we look at this text, It's just filled with joy and praise to God. The question is why? So let us explore that a little bit. If someone were to ask you to describe our world today, our country today, what what words would you choose to use? We could use words such as chaos or or perhaps conflict. I, I also think of the word tension. And all of these words indicate a lack of peace. Our our, our world could also be characterized by words such as bitterness and jealousy, envy, anger, sadness, misery. And all of these words indicate what? A lack of joy. In other words, when we examine what is happening all around us and in many places throughout this world, it is evident that there is a serious lack of joy and peace. 
People are constantly fighting with one another. We, we see wars taking place for, for various reasons. Our, our, our leaders and media have done a, a great job of creating racial and class tension. And this has caused a great deal of fighting. We, we've seen riots and looting, destroying property and lives in the name of so-called equality. There's a lack of peace in families. The divorce rates are extremely high in this world because couples cannot obtain peace with one another. They can't find joy in their relationships. And many have fractured relationships with families and cannot even meet together without there being conflict and tension. Even churches can get so tangled up with conflict that they are characterized by chaos, hostility, and fighting rather than peace and joy. And many people perceiving this, this lack of, of peace and joy search it out in, in many different ways. Many people turn to alcohol hoping to find peace and joy in a bottle only to find that this has added to their problems. Some turn to drugs, seeking to find peace and joy in the next high, only to realize that, that once the high is gone, the, the problems are still there, and now they have even more problems as they face addiction. Some turn to entertainment, to drown out the constant conflict and tension in their lives. But the problem is that as soon as the, the video game is over, as soon as the movie or song is over, the tension is still there. And so thousands turn to antidepressants to cope with the chaos and lack of joy in their lives. And even though those drugs may take the edge off, they don't solve the issues and lead to a true and lasting peace. And what's becoming common in our culture today is many are turning to homosexuality and, and transgenderism believing that perhaps if they indulge their fleshly desires and change their identity and come out of the closet, they will find peace and joy. How many wrestling with those sinful desires were told that, that, that if they just accepted who they were and came out of the closet, they would finally find peace and joy. And so how many of these people you meet who are just angry and bitter why? I believe because they were sold a lie. They, they, they thought that if they would just transition, then, then all of a sudden they would be so happy and so joyful, and now they realize it was all empty. There, there's no joy in it. There's no peace in it. Some turn to materialism, money, and toys to find peace and joy. If I, if I just make X amount of money, I'll finally be happy. If I could just get my dream home and my dream car, I will finally be at peace. If I could just make enough money to never worry about the finances coming in again, I would finally have peace and joy. But then there are many people who are there who realize there is no peace and joy, so they turn to philanthropy. Perhaps if I help enough people, the pain will go away. Perhaps if I helped enough people, I can drown out the, the conflict and, and tension in my life. And some try to be Stoics. 
I just need to man up and not care about these things. I just need to control my emotions better. And the problem with that is that we were not created that way. We were created in such a way that we desire joy. We desire peace. And we can only go for so long in misery just fighting it. And so all of these attempts of finding joy and peace are bound to fail. And so even some turn to suicide as a last-ditch effort to obtain peace and joy. They, they, they reach a point where, where, they, where the constant conflict and tension in their lives becomes overwhelming and feels too hard, too heavy to bear any longer. And they falsely assume that death must be better. Only to awaken in a place where they will lack peace and joy for all eternity. The great question we must ask is, is what has caused this lack of peace and joy in our lives, in our world, in our country, all over the place? The answer to this is quite simple. The ultimate cause of our lack of joy and peace is our broken relationship with the God who made us. We will never have true joy until we have peace. And we will never have peace until we have peace with God. As I pointed out months ago, in the introduction to Ephesians, if we don't have peace with God, we will never have internal peace. And we will never have peace with others. And we will never have joy. No matter what the person in this world gains, it cannot change the fact that he is at war with God and therefore lacking peace with God, lacking peace with others, lacking internal peace, and lacking joy. So then we ask the question, why don't we have peace with God? Did God create us to be at war with Him? Did God create us to have tension with Him? Absolutely not. The, the answer to this goes back to the book of Genesis. God, God created the man and the woman and He created them good. And He warned them that if they sinned against Him, there would be consequences. There was peace between God and man. There was no conflict. All was well. And as a result of that, all was well within the lives of Adam and Eve. But then came the serpent. And he tempted Eve to sin against God, to disobey his command, and she did. And then she gave the forbidden fruit to her husband, and he likewise ate the fruit, which was direct disobedience to God. So, so he sinned against God as well. And all of a sudden, after they sin, we see that suddenly their relationship with God is broken. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, Adam and Eve hear the, the voice of the Lord, the, the steps of the Lord coming to the garden. A sound that probably comforted them many times. A sound that, that probably brought joy to them. But, but this time, when they hear the Lord coming through the garden, something happens. They are afraid. It's not a joyful thing. It's not a comforting thing. It's a fearful thing. Why? They understood that their sins against this holy God had broken their relationship with Him. And they correctly feared His presence. 
And because our first parents sinned against God, they passed down sinful natures to all of their descendants so that their their children and all that follow were born sinful instead of good. And because all their descendants were born sinful and guilty in Adam, they were born without peace with God. And it doesn't take long to see the chaos caused by man's enmity with God. We only have to go to their first children, Cain and Abel. Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, lacked peace with God, and this caused him to be angry instead of joyful. And because of his lack of peace with God, he did not have peace with his brother Abel. So he rose up against his own flesh and blood brother and murdered him. And as I've said before, Abel never saw a murder take place. He never played violent video games. He never watched murder mysteries. And it was in his heart. Cain never saw a killing of man take place. But his lack of peace with God wrecked havoc on his own life and his relationship with others to such a degree that in raging anger, he murdered his own brother. And ever since then, even until now, Mankind is born sinful and at war with God, having no peace with God, and thus lacking peace with others and lacking joy. And the history of mankind is, is, is filled with strife, war, tension, murder, and every known sin. Men and women living in indulgent sin, abominable sin, desperately trying to find something that will bring them peace and joy in this life. And this is a terrible predicament. Because of Adam, we are born with sinful natures, lacking peace with God from birth. And we can't have joy and peace until we have peace with God. So in other words, we are born on a road to having no peace and joy in this world. And perhaps you sit here today listening to me and you realize that this condition describes your own life. Your life is plagued by conflict, strife, misery. And you have attempted many things to to find internal peace and joy, but, but you realize nothing has worked. Nothing has brought you happiness. Nothing has brought you peace. Everything you've tried has failed you. And you hopelessly fear that you are simply doomed to a life of misery. Perhaps you are sitting in a church this morning because you are wondering if there is perhaps just a glimpse of hope for you somewhere. If that describes you, you are not alone. This has been man's condition since the fall in the garden. The question is, is is there hope? After all that man has, has done, after all the sins he committed against God, is there still hope? Well, in the Old Testament, We see that even though man sinned against God and wrecked havoc with his relationship with God, 
God gave man a beacon of hope. He promised that a, that a Messiah, a Savior, would, would come and, and rescue His people. Even though man disobeyed God's command and brought sin upon us, God promised that He would send a Savior to make things right, to restore man's relationship with God. And so all throughout the Old Testament, God's people were looking for this coming Messiah. And God progressively revealed more and more about this coming Messiah. And God sent messengers, prophets, to speak to His people and to tell them of this coming Messiah. But, but many years went by without God fulfilling His promise. In fact, after the last prophet appears in the Old Testament, we have 400 years of silence. 400 years of no word from God. 400 years with no Messiah. Had God forgotten His promise? Did He refuse to fulfill His promise? Are we all hopeless? 400 years go by with no prophet in Israel. No word from the Lord. And all of a sudden, something happens. A virgin girl, Mary, miraculously gives birth to a child. And the, the angel revealed to this child's parents that, that he shall be the Savior of his people. And so Mary carries this child in her womb and gives birth to this special baby. And, and after this baby is born, God sends angels to publicly declare the good news of the arrival of the Messiah. And we see in this text, the way this birth is announced, that this is something different. I want to draw your attention to, to three things in our text, all relating to the good news of the Savior's arrival. So first, let us look at to whom did the angel announce this good news? Verse number eight. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. God sent an angel to reveal this good news to shepherds. And this is a significant thing considering the way in which shepherds were viewed in their culture. Sproul points out that the shepherds of, of Palestine were considered to be the, the lowest class of people. The nature of their calling prohibited them from frequent participation in the religious rituals of their day. In other words, because of the nature of their work, they were constantly guarding their sheep. And the Pharisees, misunderstanding the Sabbath, accused them of constantly being Sabbath breakers. They were regarded as constant lawbreakers. And not only that, they were considered to be so unscrupulous, so untrustworthy, that they were not even allowed to give testimony in court. You go to court. What's your occupation? A shepherd. We don't believe anything you say. You can't give testimony here. Contemporary society hated shepherds. But Sproul goes on to note that it seems that 
they held a special place in the heart of God. When, when God appeared in the burning bush to call a leader to bring forth the exodus, He chose a man living in exile in the Midian desert who was tending sheep. Who was that man? Moses. And God, when He went to establish the nation of Israel, He made a shepherd boy into a king. And now God chose to reveal the greatest news that had ever been given to shepherds. The angel brought this message, this good news, to people who were not considered to be significant in society. He did not bring this news to those who were the political elite. He did not bring this news to those who were rich and famous. He did not bring this news to those who were considered the religious authority of the day. Now, the wonderful thing about this news is that it is also for the political elite. It is for the rich and famous. It is for those who think they are religious. But it is also for those whose society regards as nothing. This good news is for the poor and rich alike. This good news is for the weak and the powerful alike. This good news is for the educated and uneducated alike. This shows, dear friends, that God shows no partiality. He shows no partiality. His favor is not based upon worldly possessions and privileges. Wealth and power in this world cannot buy you favor with God. Throughout the Old Testament, and even here in the opening of the New Testament, God shows favor to those who the world regards as nothing. And this is good news. This means that no matter where you are in life, this good news is for you. If anyone here today is rich and famous, understand that, that, that what you have does not give you peace with God. What you need is to hear the good news of what God has done for sinners. And if anyone here today is poor and needy, what you lack does not hinder you from finding favor in God's eyes and receiving this good news of what He has done for sinners. If you are here today as a very moral and upright person who is seeking to earn salvation by works, understand that your morality cannot give you peace with God. You need to hear what God has done for sinners. And also, if you are here today as the, the most vile and wretched sinner in town, the worst of the worst, your sins, however great they may be, do not prevent you from having peace with God, finding peace with God in this message that was delivered to these shepherds. So what was the good news that these angels brought to the shepherds? Verse number 10, Then the angels said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be to all people. Let us stop right there. The angel declares that he comes with good news, which will produce great joy. I bring you good news of great joy. There it is. 
Everyone wants to have joy. Nobody likes being miserable. We are all seeking after joy in this world. And this angel declares to the shepherds that he has good news, which will in fact bring great joy. How often does a little bit of good news bring us a little bit of joy? And we can even think of, of really dark times and you, you just hear a little bit of good news and, and it just lifts your spirit a little bit. But this good news is unlike any other. This good news can, can take those with no peace and no joy in this world and cause them to rejoice. And as Peter puts it, to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This good news is news that can give us inexpressible joy. Can you imagine having that joy that is so great that you can't express it with words? And can you imagine having inexpressible joy in all circumstances, inexpressible joy that cannot be taken away from you even through the most difficult Trying circumstances in life. Inexpressible joy that stays with you even when you suffer. An inexpressible joy that, that cannot be shaken. An inexpressible joy that is not dependent upon your circumstance. And what is this good news which can bring such inexpressible joy? Verse 11. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the good news. This is the good news the shepherd received. A Savior was born this day. The long-awaited Messiah had finally come. God had indeed remembered His promises to His people to send Him a Savior, a Redeemer, who would save His people from their sins and restore their relationship to God. Our sins made us God's enemy, giving us no peace with Him. Our sins separated us from God. Our sins have, have caused us to have internal conflict and conflict with others. Our sins prevent us from having joy. Our sins make us guilty in God's eyes, deserving of death and hell. But on that day, in the city of David, a Savior was born. A Savior who would take our sins upon Himself and die on the cross in our place. A Savior who would free us from the slavery and guilt of sin. A Savior who would reconcile us to God. A Savior who would take us from being God's enemy to God's children. A Savior who would undo all the damage that Adam had done. A Savior who will eventually undo all of the effects of the curse on this world, reuniting all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, as Paul tells us. A Savior who would give us peace with God, internal peace and peace with others. A Savior who would fill our hearts with joy. The Savior who would do all of these wonderful things, was born. That's the good news that was declared to the shepherds on that night. 
And is it not good news that brings inexpressible joy even today? Today we have the full picture. The shepherd saw the Savior as a baby. But we through Scripture know the full story. How that baby grew and became a man. How he lived a perfect life and and how he went to the cross taking upon himself the wrath of God on our behalf. And though he was crucified and buried for three days, on the third day he, he rose again proving that the sacrifice he made on our behalf was accepted by the Father. And he walked this earth in his resurrected body being seen by over 500 eyewitnesses at once and eventually ascended up into heaven, even in his resurrected body, to sit at the right hand of the Father where he was given all authority and all power. This sovereign Savior with all authority and power has taken our sins, giving us peace with God, and ensuring that when we die, we go to be with Him in a good place He has prepared for us. And here's the thing. We don't have to earn this. In fact, we can't earn this. None of us are good enough. Perhaps you hear of this great Savior and say, I'm not good enough for Him. Nobody is. No one can earn it. None of us are good enough But this salvation is freely given as a gift to us. And all we have to do is to trust in this Savior alone for salvation and turn from our sins, and we receive salvation freely. We receive peace with God freely, and we receive eternity with Christ freely as a gift. That night, dear friends, this angel brought Good news of great joy to those shepherds. News that was so good that it still brings us joy today 2,000 years later. News that was so good that we still celebrate the birth of this Savior 2,000 years later all over the world. News that was so good that you can go into pagan places, pagan businesses, and hear the good news of this message proclaimed all throughout the world. Or perhaps someone say, can we believe this angel? There is one angel who declares this good news to the shepherds. But can we believe him? Is his his testimony right? So thirdly, let me point your, your attention to the angelic witness to this good news. Verse 13, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Can you imagine how terrifying that would be? We, we, ha- we think of angels as beautiful women with long hair or as little chubby babies with curly hair. But every time an angel appears to a man, the first thing he says is, do not fear. Or as Mola would say, the first thing he says is, don't die. Because they're so terrifying. When, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, God guarded the tree of life with what? An angel. And notice that this angel's presence was such that Adam and Eve did not test him. 
They stayed away. This would have been a, a terrifying thing to, to see one angel. And, and this angel, it says that the glory of the Lord shone around him. And now, all of a sudden, there's not just one angel, but perhaps the sky is filled with them. What a terrifying thing. Two things I want you to note about this. Number one, how many witnesses does it take to establish truth? We see that both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. What's going on in this text? There is an entire host of heavenly beings giving testimony to the truthfulness of what the first angel said. It is true. Calvin puts it this way, among men, the testimony of two or three witnesses is sufficient to remove all doubt. But here is a heavenly host with one consent and one voice bearing testimony to the Son of God. What then would be our obstinacy if we refused to join with the choir of angels in singing the praises to our salvation, of our salvation, which is Christ? God sent a multitude of angelic witnesses to confirm that this was indeed the Christ, the promised Messiah who would save His people from their sins and would bring peace between God and man. But also consider who it is that gave this testimony. A multitude of the heavenly hosts is what Luke says. And hosts can be defined as a great number of angels understood as an army. Sproul put it this way, host is a military term. And it is remarkable that an army should announce peace. These angels came saying peace on earth. In other words, there's peace between God and man. Sproul goes on to say, this is the angelic army of heaven. But this army that is often associated biblically with those who fight for God are not declaring war. Instead, they are singing a song of peace. Do not overlook the significance of this. Who is God? All throughout Scripture, God refers to Himself as the Lord of hosts. And what does that mean? It literally means Lord of the armies of heaven. There is an army of angelic beings. What, what did Christ say in the Garden of Gethsemane? You don't need to defend me, Peter. If I wanted to, I would call to my Father and He would send legions of angels. And these are not little baby cherubs. These are warriors. And these warriors are standing before them declaring that God has in fact brought peace to mankind. Imagine that. What could affirm the truth of a peace treaty more than the enemy troops coming to you and they could slay you in a moment. You are absolutely powerless against them. And instead of slaying you, they praise their commander for offering you terms of peace. This is what is happening here. The very angelic soldiers who fight for God. And these are fighters. 
In the Old Testament, we are told that in one night, one angel went into an enemy camp and killed 144,000 soldiers by himself. These are fighters. And this angelic host who fight for God are standing before these shepherds as witnesses to assure man that God has indeed offered them peace. They're saying, I'm not here to slay you. I'm not here to slay you wicked men. I'm here to offer you peace with God. The army of heaven announcing that peace with God will be possible through this child who was born. We can be sure, dear friends, that if we have trusted in Jesus for salvation and turned from our sins, we have in fact obtained peace with God. That's what those angels were there declaring. That's what they were praising God for. That was the message they gave to those shepherds. And this is the message that Paul tells us in Romans 5. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our peace has been restored. And dear saints, since our relationship to God has been restored, the Holy Spirit indwells us and we bear the fruit of the Spirit, which includes peace. We have internal peace. In fact, Paul tells us that there is a peace which surpasses understanding, that surpasses knowledge that believers can in fact obtain. We we can actually have internal peace that doesn't even make sense. It surpasses knowledge. This is the peace that is not dependent upon our circumstances. We can have peace in the midst of the greatest storms in life. And we can even have peace with others as well. So much so that we are told in Proverbs 16 that when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Matthew Henry points out that God made Esau to be at peace with Jacob. God made Abimelech to be at peace with Isaac. And God even made David's enemies to court his favor. This is not always the case. But God can give believers such peace that even their enemies desire to have favor with them. Now, if it is true that we have peace with God, which is absolutely secure and we have internal peace that is unshakable, and we can even have peace with our enemies, then what does this say about the peace that believers should have between one another? God's design for the church is not strife and conflict. Not wars and fighting as as James condemned in James chapter 4. But rather, peace. And this does not mean that there are not bumpy roads. This does not mean that sparks won't fly when iron is sharpening iron. This does not mean that there are not times when error has to be corrected strongly. But it does mean that the relationship of believers to one another in the church should be marked by and absolutely characterized by peace. Not peace with error. Not peace with sin, but peace with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Dear friend, if you are a believer here today and your entire life is 
is, is nothing but controversy and strife with, with everybody you meet, even in the church, I, I would venture to say that something is seriously wrong. Listen to this. We have been saved by the very Prince of Peace through the very Gospel of Peace indwelt by the Holy Spirit who produces peace in us and who gives us a peace that surpasses all understanding. Before Christ left this world, He told His disciples, I give you My peace, peace I leave with you. And we have become members of God's kingdom, which Paul says is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Peace should characterize a Christian's life. And all of this made possible by this Savior who was born that night in the city of David. This was indeed an event that warranted the angelic host to come down and praise God for what He was doing. All of the conflict in this world from the time of Adam until now has been the result of mankind's sin, his lack of peace with God, and therefore his lack of peace with others, his lack of internal peace. And on that night, the Messiah was born who would give us peace with God, who would give us internal peace, peace with others, peace within our families, peace with even our enemies. But a Savior, like the angelic host in our text said, glory to God in the highest for, for sending this Savior who, who brought peace between God and man and who gives us great joy. And dear friend, if you do not know this peace today, as I said before, all you must do is trust in this Savior, turn to Him for salvation, and turn away from your sins, and He will indeed give you peace with God. He will give you an internal peace that surpasses knowledge, and He will give you peace with others, and He will fill your life with joy. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so unworthy of Your grace and Your mercy that, that after we've sinned against You, You extended terms of peace. And not only that, but You sent Your own Son to die on the cross to bring that peace. What a loving Father You are. That we would sin against You and that You would initiate peace. Father, if there's anyone in here today who does not know this peace and who does not have joy because they are, they are in bondage to their sins, we do ask that You would regenerate their hearts this very morning, that they would turn to You for salvation and for the first time experience true joy and true peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.